right. Yeah, well, thanks, Brandon. Thanks for that intro. So I, I got a built-in excuse now if, if it doesn't go as planned. But <laughs> no, it's a pleasure to be with you all today. Like you said, my name is Chris Helding. I'm a pastoral resident over at First Free. Uh, my wife and I are originally from farther up north. She's from North Dakota. I'm from Wisconsin, so feels a little bit like spring has come early here, so we're thankful for that, and uh, yeah, it's just a pleasure to be with you all today. As I start out, I, I want to tell you a little bit about myself, and actually, it's about my mom. So my mom's favorite movie genre is something that she likes to call inspirational sports docudramas. <laughs> and the funny thing is, she's not really that into sports. I don't know if I've ever seen her sit through an entire game, but she loves these movies, whether it's about an Indian cricket team or uh, uh, an American hockey team or a youth football team. She's, she just loves these movies. She loves inspirational sports docudramas, which tells me that it's not really about the sports, right? It's about the inspiration. It's about the drama. And all of that is heightened because these are true stories, hence the docudrama. <laughs> and I think at some level we can all kind of relate to her love of these sports movies. We like to be inspired. Something is inspirational when it shows us something that's good and virtuous and it makes it desirable for us. In the drama of this movie, we see people who are courageous or humble, people who make sacrifices for the good of the team, and we want to be like them. And these stories are true, which means that just maybe it's possible that you and me can be like that. Not the athletic ability, of course, but <laughs> the, the virtue, the goodness that we see in them. And I think Paul might be doing something similar in the passage that we have today in Philippians 2. He's giving his readers a snippet of an inspirational drama, one that's true because he wants them to be inspired. Paul has one desire, one instruction that he really wants the Philippians to get. And you probably read it a couple weeks ago. He says, live as citizens worthy of the gospel. In other words, you've been saved by Jesus, so now live like it. Now live like Jesus. But he knows that for them to do that, for them to live worthy of the gospel in spite of everything that they're facing, they need a vision. They need to see what that looks like. They need inspiration. So like the director of an inspirational sports docudrama, Paul takes what's good and beautiful, good and true, and he makes it beautiful. He shows them what gospel-worthy living looks like. He started with Jesus earlier in chapter 2. He gives us this vision of what Jesus did on our behalf. But now he brings it a little closer to home. He shows them people who they know. Two normal guys who are living like Jesus. These stories are dramatic and inspirational, but they're also true. So it just might be possible that these Philippians and that we here at the Bridge Church today might be able to live like them. And in so doing, become like Jesus. So what do these men have in common with Jesus? What makes them gospel-worthy citizens? Lots of things, but I think we can sum it up pretty simply. They've got the right priorities. These guys have got their priorities straight. 
That's what we need to see in them. That's what we need to be inspired by. And that's what we need to imitate. There's one thing that we need to learn from this passage today. Gospel-worthy citizens have gospel-worthy priorities. In other words, if you believe everything that Paul said about Jesus, then you'll end up having Jesus-like priorities. If you believe the reality of what God has done through Jesus Christ, then it'll affect what matters to you. And it's only when the church has its priorities straight that we can live worthy of the gospel. Gospel-worthy citizens have gospel-worthy priorities. So turn with me in our text today in Philippians 2, or you can read it up on the screen. Philippians 2, verses 19 to 30. Today we're going to see two things that gospel-worthy citizens prioritize, and they're exemplified by two people, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Here we go in Philippians 2, starting in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. Not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it might seem at first that all Paul is doing here is filling the Philippians in on some future travel plans, saying, I'm going to send this guy, and I'm going to send this guy too. But we learn something about Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus by what he says here. We learn what their priorities are. In this first section, which focuses on Timothy, we learn this. Gospel-worthy citizens prioritize the progress of the gospel. They prioritize the progress of the gospel. Paul says he's, he's going to send Timothy soon, just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Paul is on house arrest in Rome, but he hasn't gotten his day in court yet. He doesn't exactly know what his fate is going to be, but he's not worried about it. He's confident that he'll soon be released, which is why he says in verse 24, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. There's no doubt in Paul's mind that he's going to go free. And he wants to send Timothy, though, to tell them just as soon as he finds out that he's going to go free. But Paul also has another purpose in mind for sending Timothy. And it shows us what Paul really prioritizes. He doesn't just want to fill them in on what's going on with him. He wants to find out what's going on with them. He wants to hear how they're doing. In verse 19, it says, He hopes to send Timothy so that I too may be cheered by news of you. What kind of news is Paul looking for? Well, he's not really interested what the weather's been like down in Philippi. 
he actually has something really specific in mind. This phrase that's translated news of you in verse 19, it, it literally means the things about you, the things concerning you. It sounds really vague, right? But it's significant because this exact same phrase has actually already come up in Philippians. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, which is kind of Paul's thesis statement, his main point of the whole letter, there Paul says this, only live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. That's our phrase again. He wants to hear the things about you. And what are those things that he wants to hear? He wants to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That's the news Paul wants to hear about them, that they're living worthy of the gospel, which means that they're standing together in unity, not divided, that they're proclaiming the gospel boldly, even in the face of persecution. So he wants to see if that's happening. He doesn't just want a life update, he wants a progress report. Is the gospel actually growing deep in them? So that's why he's sending this whole letter of Philippians. He wants to see, when he sends Timothy, he wants to see if this letter has had its desired effect, if they've shaped up. That's what Paul wants to know. He wants the good news about Jesus to go wide to people who have never heard it and to grow deep in these Philippians who have already heard and believed it. You know, there are some people, usually those who really care about you, who they really want to know what's going on with you. These are, these are people who, they don't make a whole lot of small talk with you. Right? They want to know how things are really going. It's not like, hey, how you doing? Oh, pretty good, how are you? Oh, pretty good, how are you? No, they say, hey, how are you doing? And they really want to know. They really want to know what's going on with you. They want to know the good and the bad, which can be kind of scary because if you're not living the way you ought to, they're probably going to hold you accountable. They're going to set you straight. But Paul is that kind of friend. He's that kind of guy. He really wants to know how they're doing because he cares about them. So he's sending Timothy to check up on them. But Paul doesn't say this to be scary. He's being encouraging. In fact, he expects Timothy to find out that they have shaped up. That's why he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy so that I too may be cheered by news of you. He wants a good report, and he's confident that God is going to work in them and produce the change he wants to see. He expects to be encouraged in the progress that they've made. But why does Paul send Timothy specifically? We know that there are other believers with him in Rome. Why does he choose to send Timothy? Well, Paul tells him why. He's sending Timothy because Timothy has his priorities straight. He also prioritizes the progress of the gospel. Paul says in verse 20, could we get the, um, the passage up on the screen again? Just so people can follow along. Thanks. Paul says, I'm sending Timothy, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That phrase translated, your welfare. It's the same one we've been talking about. Paul knows Timothy is genuinely concerned about the things about them. Are they living in unity? Are they standing firm in their faith, even amidst persecution? Are they living worthy of the gospel? Paul knows that Timothy is genuinely concerned about that. 
He's preoccupied with this priority. He's even a little bit stressed about it. He's, he's concerned, maybe a little anxious about this question. Are they living gospel-worthy? He's got this burden to see them living gospel-worthy lives because he really cares about them. So he's not going to waste time on small talk. He's going to find out how they're really doing. Paul says Timothy is kind of unique in this. He says, for I have no one like him. Paul means there's no one who's so like-minded to him as Timothy. Timothy is a man after Paul's own heart. When they wake up in the morning, they're thinking about the exact same thing. This one thing that they're really concerned about, the progress of the gospel. They want to see people not only believing and trusting in Jesus for salvation, but living in obedience to Jesus out of thankfulness for that salvation. And because Timothy's got his priorities straight, Paul is confident that he is the guy to send. But not everyone shares this priority with Paul and Timothy. Verse 21, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, does Paul really mean that everyone except Timothy is just a selfish jerk? I don't think so, because... As we're going to see, the second person in our passage today, Epaphroditus, is clearly not a selfish person. So what's Paul talking about when he says they all seek their own interests? Well, he's probably talking about the people in Rome who we mentioned in chapter 1 who proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. He could also be talking about some people in Philippi who are causing this disunity in the church. The point is that there are a lot of selfish people around. I don't think I have to convince you of that. There are a lot of people who are just looking out for number one, who don't care about others but only themselves. But they are the polar opposite of Timothy. He doesn't seek his own interests, he seeks those of Jesus Christ. And this isn't the first time we've heard Paul talking about interests in Philippians. Remember earlier in chapter 2, when Paul urges them to have unity, how does he say they can accomplish it? He says, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So then we get down here to verse 21. We kind of expect Paul to say, for they all seek their own interests, not the interests of others. But he says, not those of Jesus Christ. Why? Why does he replace their, their own interests, or the interests of others, with the interests of Jesus Christ? Well, seeking the interests of others, their real best interests, turns out to be the same thing as seeking the interests of Jesus Christ. I mean, clearly Timothy cares about others. He's genuinely concerned about them. But the ultimate expression of concern for someone else is when you want what Jesus wants for them. You're not overly concerned with what you want. You're not even overly concerned with what they want. You're concerned with what God wants for them. And what does God want for people? He wants them to believe the gospel and to live lives worthy of it, live as citizens worthy of the gospel, to be saved and to work out their salvation. So Timothy is seeking the interests of Christ by prioritizing their progress in the gospel. Of course, the Philippians already know what Timothy's like because his actions have already demonstrated, already proven his priorities. 
There's proof of his priorities, and Paul reminds them of that. Verse 22, he says, There are some people who only look out for themselves, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. This verse basically tells us two things about Timothy. It tells us his life looked a lot like Paul's, and it looked a lot like Jesus Christ's. He says, Timothy was like a son to Paul. Not just in the sense that they loved one another, I mean, they did, but Timothy was like an obedient son, one who observed what his father was doing and always did the same. He's doing what Paul urged them to do in earlier in chapter 2, to be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind. Timothy and Paul are unified in what they think and in what they do. How can they have such unity? Well, the same way that Paul told the Philippians to have unity. It's unity through humility. Now, the, the English translation, it doesn't really capture the nuance of this word served in verse 22. Paul and Timothy didn't just serve alongside one another. They served like slaves, like bond servants. That's how Paul introduces them in the greeting of this letter. He says, Paul and Timothy, slaves, servants of Christ Jesus. Of course, this metaphorical slavery was a willing servitude. And it was to a loving master. It's nothing like the brutal slavery that mars our nation's history. But for Paul and Timothy, there could be no more fitting title than slaves. Because they had given up their rights to serve someone else. They were of one mind because they'd set aside their own interests to serve the interests of Jesus Christ. They were no longer free to do whatever they pleased because they did the will of someone else. Because they'd been bought with a price. They were bound, constrained, fixed to one purpose. The gospel. Verse 22 says, Timothy served as a slave with Paul in or for the gospel. The focus of their entire lives was this good news about Jesus Christ. They wanted people to hear it, to believe it, to live lives worthy of it. In other words, they had their priorities straight. They prioritized the same thing that Jesus does. And if you truly pursue the interests of Jesus Christ, you end up looking like Christ. Remember what Paul said earlier in chapter 2. Jesus himself, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hang on to his own interests, his own rights, his own privileges. He was perfectly obedient to the one who sent him, a son with a father. So he, verse 7, emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, servant, God himself, who was utterly free, he took the form of a slave. Jesus took on the priorities of his father to such an extent that every right and every privilege of his own was given up, even life itself. And it's because Jesus did that, that Paul and Timothy and you and I can be free from bondage to sin and death. That's the good news. That's the gospel. But those who have been saved, those who live by the gospel, always live for the gospel. 
The only people who have been saved by Jesus are those who have allowed his interests and his desires to become their own. You're only saved by Christ if you're a slave to Christ. So are you truly serving Christ or serving yourself? What does your life prove about your priorities? Are you genuinely concerned about his interests? What are you genuinely concerned about? Money? Having a lot or just having enough? Sports? Just, just being... Distracted? <laughs> Politics? What are your priorities? Are you concerned about what people think about you? What are you really concerned about? When we're resurrected and we stand before Christ, we'll be asked to give an account for everything that we've done in life. This doesn't mean that we earn our salvation. It doesn't mean that we're accumulating heaven points so that we can convince Jesus that we're good enough once we get there. It simply means that Jesus is going to ask, where's the proof? You're saying to me, Lord, Lord, but do your actions in life prove that you called me Lord in life? Do you have proof that you sought my interests, not your own? On that day, Timothy is going to have proof. He can say, Lord, you know my proven worth, how as a son with a father I served with Paul as a slave for the gospel. I didn't seek my own interests, I sought your interests. Timothy will have proof. Will you? So we know why Paul is sending Timothy. Paul cares about the progress of the gospel among the Philippians. And Timothy shares that very same concern. He's got the same priority as Paul, same priority as Jesus, and he's proven it with his service for the gospel. So Paul's going to send Timothy soon, but he's sending another person right now with this letter. And that's who we're introduced to in verse 25. In the second half of our passage here, Paul's once again just filling us in on some travel plans, but he's also showing us another thing that gospel-worthy people prioritize. Gospel-worthy citizens prioritize the good of others. That seems really basic, right? But it's absolutely essential if we're going to live as gospel-worthy citizens. Gospel-worthy citizens prioritize the good of others. And we can see that priority in Epaphroditus. You can tell Epaphroditus' priorities by his emotions. There's so many emotion words in this passage. He's been longing for the Philippians because he's been distressed that they heard he was ill. Paul doesn't take these emotions to be a bad thing. In fact, they're the whole reason that he thinks it's necessary to send Epaphroditus. Now, in order to understand what all the worry is about in this passage, we've got to understand the situation. Philippi was almost a thousand miles away from Rome in modern-day Greece. The Philippians had sent Epaphroditus to visit Paul in Rome. And as you can imagine, traveling that far in those days didn't mean hopping on a flight. It didn't mean jumping in the car. Now, this was not a weekend trip. This was a long time. And they weren't traveling in a climate-controlled vehicle. They would have been exposed to the elements on this journey. And perhaps that's why Epaphroditus fell ill on the way. 
very ill. At one point, it looked like he wasn't going to make it. He was on death's doorstep. Now, somehow in there, they managed to send word back to his church family in Philippi to let them know that he was really sick. He was doing better now, but the Philippians didn't know that. Last they heard, he was dangerously ill. This wasn't an era of rapid communication. They couldn't just send him a text. Hey man, praying for you, heard you were really sick. Are you feeling better now? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for your prayers. No, they couldn't send a text. They, all they could do was wait and pray. Can you imagine the distress of the Philippians who were just left hanging like that? Can you imagine the pain of Epaphroditus knowing he left his church family hanging like that? Paul can empathize with all of them. It's because of Epaphroditus' distress that he says it's necessary to send him. And he feels for the Philippians as well. In verse 27, he says, If Epaphroditus had died, he would have had sorrow upon sorrow. He knows what the pain is like of thinking your friend is going to die. And he wants to change it. That's why he says in verse 27, he's eager to send Epaphroditus, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Paul cares about the distress that his friends are feeling. Just like Epaphroditus, he feels the pain of others. And so to relieve their pain means to relieve his own pain as well. These men, they're motivated by their emotions, but not in a selfish way. They're sending Epaphroditus because he's distressed and Paul's anxious, but they're only distressed because they so prioritize the good of others. They're so other-centered that their emotions genuinely reflect it. But where's the proof? Timothy had proof. What about Epaphroditus? Do his actions show that his emotions were genuine? Well, Paul certainly thinks so. Verse 30 says, He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So, as we know, Paul was on house arrest in Rome. And in this culture, when you were imprisoned, you didn't get three square meals a day. Your family and your friends were responsible for providing for your needs. And apparently, Paul was lacking some basic necessities. If he didn't get help, he wasn't going to eat. The Philippians, they were hundreds of miles away. They couldn't all be there to help him, but they could send Epaphroditus. But as we know, their relief worker soon found himself in dire circumstances. Traveling was never without risk in those days. And when he fell ill, they couldn't just call an ambulance. They couldn't just pull aside at the nearest hospital. Maybe they could have turned back, or maybe they could have taken an extended stay somewhere along the way. But in the meantime, Paul would have gone hungry. Yet to continue this journey meant for Epaphroditus to risk his own life. But it seems he had a higher priority than even his own life. He had a mission to complete. His friend Paul was in need. And so he pressed on because his priority was Paul's good, not his own. And now that the mission is complete, what's he going to do? You can imagine him saying, you know, I've given my whole life for the gospel and for the good of others. I nearly died to help out Paul. Now it's time to focus on me. Now I'm going to do what's good for me. 
But that's not what Epaphroditus does. No, his, his people in Philippi are still in pain, and he can bring relief. So he's getting back on that road that almost killed him. There's his proof. His emotions gave evidence, and his actions gave proof of the kind of person he was. That's why in verse 25, Paul calls him a fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. And as we can see in verse 30, this fallen soldier, he's done the work of Christ. And he's completed their service. Same word as ministry. He's completed their service to Paul. Ministry, warfare, work. Living for Christ is all of that. If you're a citizen of Christ's kingdom, you're in his priesthood. You're in his army. You're in his workforce. And everything you do is focused on the good of others. You minister to the needs of others. You serve alongside your brothers and sisters in this battle against Satan. You work, you labor for the good of others. Because that's the boss's business. That's the work of Christ. And once again, it's no coincidence that those who truly work for Christ end up looking like Christ. Those who are children of God, they share a family resemblance with Jesus. So the thing Paul says about Timothy and Epaphroditus, they have echoes of the things he said about Jesus just a few verses ago. We saw that Timothy was a slave like Christ. Now we can see in verse 30 that Epaphroditus gave up his life like Christ. It literally says, For the work of Christ, he came near to the point of death. Sound familiar? Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. There are echoes of Jesus here. Because you can't live for Christ unless you live like Christ. You can't do his will unless you do it his way. Becoming a slave. Giving up your good for the good of others. And might I suggest that we even see a family resemblance to God the Father in this passage. Verse 27, Paul says, Epaphroditus was ill, near to death, but what? But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. He's the God who shows mercy. See, when people became seriously sick in the first century, they didn't often survive. There was no modern medicine, there were no antibiotics. We often forget that all of those things are God's mercy as well, that they're no less miracles. But in the first century, when somebody recovered from sickness, the mercy of God was obvious. It was tangible. You could reach out and touch it because this brother of theirs, who was as good as dead, was standing before them alive. Paul says God had mercy on them. On him as well, because the grief would have been unbearable. God cares about the pain of his people. And out of his mercy, he acts for their good. Not because he has to, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Do you remember when Moses asked the Lord, he asked him, show me your ways, that I may know you. Show me your glory. How did God describe himself? 
He passed by and he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. It's the first thing that God thought Moses ought to know about him. He's merciful. They needed to know he was merciful. They were going to need some of that mercy before they got to the promised land. And we need to know that too. What could be more merciful than giving up his own son so that we could be saved through him? Titus 3, verses 4 and 5, one of my favorite passages. It says, we were all slaves to our sinful desires, but what? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Jesus is the very embodiment of God's mercy. He became a slave. He was obedient to the point of death. All because he shared in the mercy of his Father. In other words, he prioritized the good of others. Which means he also prioritized the, good, the, the progress of the gospel. These two priorities, they can't be separated. Because our highest good is found only in the gospel. Our greatest good is that we would know Christ, that we would be saved by him, and then also that we would live like him, that we would become like him. The gospel isn't just that we can be saved from our sins, it's that we can be conformed to the image of God's Son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. It means that anybody can join this family of God. But if you're truly a member of the family, by God's grace, you'll start to look like one. So when Paul gives us a picture of Epaphroditus, we see Jesus. We see Jesus in Paul, too, in Timothy. There's a family resemblance that's unmistakable. It's not the eyes or the nose, it's the heart and the mind. They feel the way God feels. They think the way God thinks. They have the same priorities. The progress of the gospel and the good of others. So the question is, do you bear that resemblance? When someone looks at your life, do they see something of Jesus in you? Do they see something inspiring, something worth imitating? If not, Paul gives us somewhere to start, I think. Paul only gives us two commands in this passage. In verse 29, he tells them to receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. The world tends to honor those who work tirelessly for their own progress and those who are willing to risk anything for their own good. Paul says, honor those who prioritize gospel progress, who take risks for the good of others. That's the sort of person we ought to be around. That's the sort of person we ought to celebrate and honor and look up to. And Paul's just shown us how to honor such people. Tell their stories. Tell their stories, like he told the story of Epaphroditus and Timothy. So who at the Bridge Church have you seen prioritizing the progress of the gospel and the good of others? Tell those stories, because 
They're dramatic. They're inspirational. All the more because they're true. But when you tell their stories, don't miss the resemblance. Say, he looks like his heavenly father. She looks like her savior. There's a family resemblance. They look like the men and women who showed them what gospel-worthy living is all about. People who were saved by Christ and therefore lived like him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the stories of these men who looked so much like Jesus Christ. Thank you that they embodied your mercy, your grace, your own interests, your own priorities on the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would have those very same priorities, that you would root out everything else that we prioritize, everything else that we love more than the things you love. And replace that, Father, with the right priorities. God, do that by your Spirit. We need you. We trust you. We thank you for who you are. Pray that you would be present and at work here today. In Jesus' name, amen.